So we're in the book of Isaiah and the third servant song, and it's another prophetic passage about Christ and the cross, and it's written long before he was born. And if we turn to it together, chapter 50, verse 4, we read, The Lord God, the sovereign God, has given me, Jesus speaking, the tongue of those who are taught. And this literally means a disciple's tongue. That's what the, the Hebrew is. And we think of Jesus having disciples, but we don't often think of him being a disciple, do we? But Jesus, even though Jesus is fully God, he lives a fully human life. And that means he needs to learn things. He needs to be taught just like we do. We know very, very little about Jesus' childhood. But what little we do know about Jesus' childhood, just a few snippets here and there, reveals to us that he was indeed thoroughly taught. Luke 2 records that the child Jesus once went missing for three whole days until finally his parents found him in the temple. And then surrounded by all of these amazing scholars and temple dudes, we read that they were amazed by him, by this child's knowledge of the word. Clearly, he was immersed in the word of God. He was discipled. He was thoroughly taught. And then there's this gap, and we really don't know very much about what he was up to. And then we get to his baptism, and Luke records for us again that, that Jesus was about 30 years of age at this point. And from the baptism, we get the temptation and we learn so much. It's an adulthood story, but we learn so much about his childhood from this story of a 30-year-old man. He's clearly been discipled because alone in the wilderness, tempted and tested by Satan, he responds to every single trick of the enemy with the word. And he couldn't possibly have done that if he hadn't been immersed in the word. The writer Alicia Britt Cole in her book, Anonymous, says this. Trials reveal what we've done with our lives up to this point. So it's not like trials prepare us to go and do something even bigger and better. It's that trials expose what we've been up to hitherto. And this trial in the wilderness just shows to us what Jesus' childhood must have been like. He was in the Word. He was taught. So the prophecy comes true. The prophecy, Isaiah 50, it says he's going to be well-discipled, and he was. And because he was well-taught, well-discipled, immersed in the word, he knew what to say, not only to Satan as a rebuke, but to us as an invitation. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. By the way, see the Lord God. I love scripture open. Do you see that the uh, the, the translators have written God strangely here. Probably used to seeing Lord in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D in capital letters, and God with a capital G in lowercase letters. That's telling us that the covenant name of God is being used, and we've looked at it hundreds of times. This one's weird, because Lord is lower and God is caps. And the first three pages of your Bible, you'll see a note from the translators there explaining what they're up to. It's telling us a defined term is being used here for God telling us that they're translating a very specific piece of Hebrew, Adonai Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord God, the special name of God that reminds us he's in control. He's in charge. He is sovereign. You know, they can't write all of that in every sentence, so they just 
fool around with the text and the font to make it clear. But the sovereign God has given to me. He's a giving God, this sovereign. The tongue of those who are taught, it's a gift. So that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. He's taught so that he can teach. Now, sustain is apparently quite hard to translate, but sustain means to console. It means to shepherd and to care for and to respond to all of the needs of him who is weary. That is anyone who is fainting under life's demands. If that's you, if you're tired, I want you to know that Christ has a word for you. I think we're at a point now where we need a word. We need something new. Perhaps this word that restores and refreshes and consoles and shepherds and cares for and responds to our weariness. Perhaps this word is needed more now than at any other point in our lives so far. Many of us are weary. Now, if you think back to this time last year, this is actually the anniversary of the weirdness starting. And uh, it's more polished, but it's still weird. Think back to a, a year and a day ago. We weren't exactly fresh then, were we? Most of us. But now we've got all these new fatigues on top of all of the old ones that we normally have. We have a whole raft of new fatigues. Zoom fatigue. Study published in the Journal of Technology, Mind and Behavior found that excessive and intense eye contact, constantly watching a video of yourself, limited mobility as you're stuck at a desk, and energy spent trying to read the social cues that you would more easily pick up on face-to-face -face in person has left us all feeling exhausted. Pandemic fatigue. Assistant professor at the University of Chicago, Dr. Susan J. Lambert, recently said that a loss of purpose, community, routine, and physical touch, coupled with the overuse of social media, has left us, quote, tired in our soul, emotionally, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. COVID caution fatigue. Dr. Jacqueline Golan, psychologist with Northwestern Medicine, describes this as the worry caused by reading too many overly dramatic news stories, which has led to a secondary problem of getting fatigued by all of our precautions, like this stuff, which has led to a tertiary problem of just giving up, taking risks, and then getting sick, which has led to a fourth fatigue. COVID fatigue itself, the body's natural biological response to getting a horrible virus, which has led to a fifth fatigue, COVID combat fatigue. And this is where medical staff on the front lines are just running on empty, exhausted, and they feel guilty about people they've left at home and neglected their families through hours of, of work and then guilty about patients that they've left on the ward and who have died when they, through basic human exhaustion, have had to go and sleep. So if ever there was a time when we as a culture needed something to restore and revive and sustain and address our weariness and fatigue, it would be now. And it's right here that these wonderful erudite scholars and hardworking practitioners who've observed so much that is true and tried so hard to help us all 
fall into exactly the same trap at the same time. All of them. In each of those resources and articles that I've just cited, all of them suggest that the solution to our problem lies within ourselves. Every one of them has what I'm going to call a so what section near the end of their report, a paragraph that says, here's what you can do about your fatigue. And every one of them says exactly the same thing. Think positive. That's their solution. Their word is, come up with something from within your own depleted resources with which to revive yourself. That is not the servant's word. That's not the word that Christ has for you. He knows that advice will just make you more fatigued. And he knows if you do that for long enough, it will kill you. So Jesus does something unique. He not only speaks, he acts. He does something. In fact, his word, this uniquely reviving word that Jesus has for you, is in fact a testimony to the fact that he will do something for you. In fact, the good news of the truth that he has already done it. And so this song, this servant song, the prophecy in Isaiah 50, it moves on to what I'm going to call Christ's so what section. The bit where he tells us what he's going to do rather than tells you what you need to do. He says in verse 7, I have set my face like a flint firmly resolved to do a thing. And Luke 9 echoes these words and explains to us what that thing is. Luke 9 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, and that means to be crucified, and he knew it, he set his face, there's those words again, to go to Jerusalem. And what's so important about that? What is so key about the cross. Verse 8 tells us, one word sermon. We've only got one sermon in this place. It'll be the same next week. Vindication. The cross should not be a vindication. It should be a declaration of guilt. The cross is a place of, of abject shame. It's a place, isn't it, where every sin is just exposed and punished as it should be. Every limitation, every human failing is exposed on the cross. And the cross results, as it should, in death and then in decay. We'll stick this criminal up on this thing, take him down and we'll throw him away, and they will rot. And yet Christ is vindicated on the cross, not shamed, vindicated. He doesn't rot. He resurrects. And in fact, he's glorified on the cross. The glorification comes as it dawns upon us why he is there. There's the glory. When it clicks in your heart what he's doing on the cross, there's the glory. It might click now for the first time. It might click now for the hundredth time. But there's glory in that moment, that revelation, where you suddenly get why he is there. The fact is that on the cross he is acting out. He's living out or dying out the word. This is the thing. The cross is the word that he chose the cross for you. He chose it to take upon himself your sin and to die your death so that you could be in his place. And if he 
has swapped places with you and he is vindicated, that means you are vindicated. Your sin is dealt with and taken away. And you are vindicated by God himself. So that's the word. That's the thing that we preach. That's the thing we've been taught. So as I share that with you, let me ask you, what are you listening to? What are you reading? Who are you believing? Who is teaching and discipling you? And what have you immersed yourself in each day? What is your discipler? Do you just consume other human thoughts all day long, morning by morning, like most people do? Every morning and every night, just scroll through the doom on your device and and fall asleep at night and scroll through the doom on your device and wake up and go out and live exhausted. Is that what you do? Or do you give yourself something fresh from the Lord each day? Do you immerse yourself in the word? The servant says in verse 4, Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. God wakes him up. The servant, in order to serve, in order to teach, in order to act, immerses himself each day in what it is that God has to say to him. The word sustains him. This is where Christ's ability to sustain us comes from. It is from the fact that he has sustained himself on the word. The amazing thing is that as you think about Jesus, and if it weren't Christian doctrine, it would sound like blasphemy. Though he's fully God, he does this saving and refreshing and reviving and shepherding of us and dying for us as one who was fully man. He does it humanly. I mean, God, I guess, could have just appeared as some sort of mystical substance and just floated around and gone, womity, womity, wom, and it's all fixed, and that could be, you know, our faith, but it isn't. He incarnated as a baby in filth and, and walked around and went to the temple as a child and got baptized like we do and filled with the Spirit like we can be and was tempted as we are. And then he died. Is there anything more human than a death? Philippians chapter 2 says this of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he is God in, in, in full substance, did not, count him, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Didn't go on about it. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Just starts off God in this paragraph, but doesn't use his God stuff. Instead, as a perfect, as the perfect God, incarnates as a human and just continually humbles himself. It gets worse and worse and worse. A servant, human form, death, cross. It just gets worse and worse and worse as he does this for you. That's the word. He's taken on all of that sin and that frailty and he wishes to revive you. And he does all of this because morning by morning he feeds on the word. So let's think about ourselves for a minute. Let's have our own little so what section. Can we do this? Or something like it? I don't think we could save the universe. But could we live a little bit like Jesus? Could we act a little bit like Jesus? 
Well, obviously, a question I get asked a lot, and I, I'm imagining you all get asked this question, is how is your pandemic going? How are you feeling? How are you coping? Are you fatigued? Are you tired? And I found, actually, that quite a few people have been surprised by my response because what I usually say is, no, I'm having a really good time, actually. It's been hard. I miss my mum and dad. They're on the other end of that lens. And, uh, you know, we've worked hard in this place. But spiritually speaking, the last year and a day has been the best time of my life. It's, It's been brilliant. I've loved it. And they say to me when I say these things, what? Are you absolutely, like, bonkers. What's wrong with you? And I say to them, well, I've just got to be honest. Compared to this time last year, I do feel closer to God. I feel more content. I feel more relaxed. I feel more filled with energy and more overwhelmed with joy. And I feel less anxious. I feel less confused about what to do in my ministry and less uncertain about the direction that this church should be going in. And I feel a lot less overwhelmed by life. And obviously, if they haven't punched me in the face, they say, how? How has this happened? Well, you've read Isaiah 50. You've heard the prophecy. You saw what Jesus did, what he immersed himself in each morning. What do you think I say? I tell them that I got a new mug. That's what I tell them. I love mugs. Famously, there are five different mug languages, and I speak all of them. Small mugs, large mugs, graphic mugs, hand-fired and thermal. I love all mugs. I just think they're great. uh, Last year, I got a new insulated mug with a lid. It's right here. It's a Yeti. Oh, feast your eyes. It's not any old Yeti. It's a Christchurch Fox Chapel branded sample Yeti. Hey, pretty good, isn't it? This thermal mug has transformed my life. And you might be thinking, I've gone absolutely crazy, but... Because this mug kept my coffee hotter for longer, I read my Bible for longer. (laughs) And that was it. I'd love to tell you that there's some great, you know, spiritual colossus standing before you this morning and leading you, that uh, there was some sort of Herculean feat that I garnered up from within to revive my own soul that I generated some superpower, and it could be yours too for just $10.99 a month. But uh, there was nothing like that that happened. There was no power of positive thought for which I can take any credit. I just had a really good cup of coffee, and I sit down with the word, and I read more Bible last year than I normally do because I got a new mug. That's it. And there were mornings... Last year, where, where I, I, I actually woke to, to the voice of the sovereign God speaking to me in my bed, saying, come and get up. Come and sit with me. Come and listen to me. I felt God saying that. And I'm going to be really honest with you. You know what sweetened the deal? It, it was the mug. <laughs> I was like, why? Just, and I thought, you know, I... I'm just telling you what happened. Read your Bible, church. Read it. The sovereign of the universe is talking to you. If it means buying a new mug, and that's what sweetens it, just do it. You know, whatever. Get a new chair. Buy a fancy lamp. Whatever. Get a, get a, a big tablet with bigger font if your eyes are going off like mine are. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Come on. 
Read your Bibles. Jesus immersed himself in the word. I, I doubt he needed a fancy mug. But if that's what it takes, get in the word. And I've seen it in others. I've seen it over and over again. It's the ones who are thriving are always in the word. Some of them, you know, life stages, you've got to be inventive. Get it on, you know, audio and listen in the car, whatever. If there's chaos, find that little moment and get in the word. Jesus knew what to say to revive the fatigued because he was in the word. And he knew what to do. And far more importantly, he obeyed it because he was in the word. And although the word is all about him, it's all about Jesus, because he did this in such a human way, it leaves open for us the possibility, the shocking possibility, that we could do something a bit like this as well. So let's pray. Father God, please revive us. I ask God that if we are feeling fatigued, and we probably should be, would you just refresh us? Perhaps tomorrow there'd just be this new start. Just pray, Father, that you would give us the space and the time to read your word and give us the discipline to make that space and time somehow. Thank you, God, that you did these amazing things for us to vindicate us and take away that shame. We just give you praise, God, that it's not on us to save ourselves. It's on you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.